So before I read Psalm 86, I normally start by reading the scripture and then unpacking it. The Psalms, they're just awesome. Like they're, you know, Chris Guest last week kind of joked, you know, our two missionaries, they selected the same verse. And I'm going, guys, well, maybe God wanted you both to share the same verse, but they felt like they couldn't share the same verse. And, and Chris Guest alluded to something like, well, if you're ever in trouble with finding a, a scripture verse, you just open up the Psalms and flip through there and something will jump out at you. And it really is true. The Psalms are just a, a wonderful worship book of, of, of individuals and the nation of Israel singing praises to the Lord. In selecting one to teach on, it's, I've already done a bunch of them. And so I'm really limited. And I'm flipping through Psalms like, man, these are all good. These are all good. But none of them was kind of jumping me out. So then I'm like, but I'm running out of time. Like it's Sunday afternoon. I'm like, I'm running out of time. I got to choose something. So then I go to Facebook. You know, that's where all the answers are. And I, last Sunday I announced, hey, what's your favorite psalm? And it was really cool, like hearing people's like sharing like their, their favorite psalms. And, you know, but I had to just select one, you know, like, and I had to start studying on it. So. So Kelly Nichols, or one of our missionaries from Africa, she says, oh, Psalm 86 is my favorite. And I flipped it open, and I'm like, oh, this one really, like, it touched me. And I'm like, the final answer, I'm going to go with this one, and we're gonna, I'm going to study all week, because I got it. Sunday's coming, whether or not I make up my mind. And so, so I went with this one. And instead of just reading through it initially, I, I want to kind of give you guys the cliff notes because I've read it, reread it, read it in another translation, read it in a bunch of translations, read it over and over and over again, trying to figure it out. How do I teach through this? This is, this is, this is a prayer of David is the first observation we'll see in the beginning. In this section of the Psalms, the Psalms are divided. Each one's its own like individual. They're not kind of linked together. But the books in Psalms, there's three main categories. This is the only one of David. This, this one is a personal prayer to God that somehow we got access to. I, in reading it this week, I feel like I intercepted somebody's love letter. And I'm like, ooh, look, what he's, look at this. Look what he's saying. This is, it's almost like it wasn't really intended for us. This is David speaking to God. And as I'm going over it and going over it and going over it, I noticed that there were four basic categories of thought within this. And before we read it, I want to I go over each one of these categories that jumped out at me. The, the first I, that I noticed is David makes a bunch of, rec- of requests through this. So I'm just going to read through the request to hear the things that he's asking of from God. And so in verse 1, he asks, Incline your ear, O Lord. Answer me. Verse 2, preserve my soul. O you, my God, save your servant. Verse 3, be gracious to me. Verse 4, make glad the soul of your servant. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Verse 6, give heed to the voice of my supplications. Moving down to verse 11, teach me your way, O Lord. Unite my heart to fear your name. Verse 16, turn to me and be gracious to me. Grant your strength to your servant and save the son of your handymaid. Show me a sign for good. So these are the requests. There's a, there's a number of requests that he's asking of the Lord. The second thing I see in this psalm is 
David sort of I don't, describes himself or he speaks of who he is. For example, in verse 1, he says, I am afflicted or poor and needy. Verse 2, I am a godly man who trusts in you. Verse 3, I cry all day long for the Lord. Not that he's just weeping, he's praying to the Lord. Verse 4, I lift up my soul to you. Verse 7, in the day of my trouble, I shall call upon you. Verse 11, I will walk in your truth. Verse 12, I will give thanks to you and glorify your name forever. So in this, he makes his request. He shares about himself to the Lord. Uh, one of the big aspects in this, he describes God. He goes to God and he, he reminds himself of who God is. For example, in verse 5, he says this in the third category about the Lord. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive, abundant in loving kindness. For you will answer me. There is none like you, nor are there any works like yours in verse 8. Verse 10, you are great and do wondrous deeds. You alone are God. Verse 13, your loving kindness towards me is great. You have delivered my soul. Verse 15, but you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth. Verse 17, but you, O Lord, have helped me and comforted me. So we have David's, his requests. Then we have David kind of describing his heart and who he is before the Lord. And then he talks about who's, who God is and his character and, and his uniqueness. And then finally, we, I kind of like, for lack of better word, I have them. Like them, they, the other, the other people, the, the situation that's kind of affecting him or just people in general that he reflects on. And in this category, it's few. Verse 9, we read, All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord. They shall glorify your name. Verse 14, O God, arrogant men have risen up against me, and a band of violent men have sought my life, and they have not set you before them. Verse 17, that those who hate me may see it and be ashamed. And so you see these four categories kind of going through this. And with this introduction, kind of just kind of giving you the cliff notes of these key points. Now I want to read the psalm as a whole before we work through it. So Psalm 86, verse 1. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am afflicted and needy. Preserve my soul, for I am a godly man. O you, my God, save your servant who trusts in you. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you I cry all day long. Make glad the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer and give heed to the voice of my supplications. In the day of my trouble, I shall call upon you, for you will answer me. There is no one like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and they shall glorify your name. 
You are great and do wondrous deeds. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord. I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I will give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with all my heart, and will glorify your name forever. For your loving kindness toward me is great, and you have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O God, arrogant men have risen up against me, and a band of violent men have sought my life, and they have not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth. Turn to me and be gracious to me. O grant your strength to your servant and save the son of your handymaid. Show me a sign for good that those who hate me may see it and be ashamed because you, O Lord, have helped me and comforted me. And Father, we do thank you for this psalm, Lord. We pray that you would help us now. Lord, help us to see um, what David prayed here. Lord, help us to see the principles that we can apply to our life. Lord, help us to see you as the God that you are. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the very first verse here is kind of the summary statement. Not that David at all was, was kind of writing a summary statement, but, but the very first wor- line, the very first sentence gives the overview, the heart of this psalm. And David writes, Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am afflicted, or some translations read poor and needy. So David, as he writes this psalm, as he calls out to the Lord, the first thing I notice about God, which we see throughout all of the scriptures, God is a God who not only listens to us and can hear us and can hear the cries of our heart, but he responds to us. And as David calls out, Lord, hear me, hear my prayer, hear what I'm going through, hear what, hear what I'm crying over, the things I'm struggling with right now, but I want to hear your voice. I want to hear what you have to say to me in the midst of this. He says, for I'm afflicted, I am poor and needy. David, as he approaches God, he understands who he is before the Lord. And reading this first verse, like it's like teaching on Psalms is like one of the hardest things because I am so not, you know, I was not from what is, I don't even know the era, the romantic era or whatever, you know, like I'm not a poet. I'm not a worship guy. I don't think like this. I'm German. I'm like, just, you know, let's get to the point. It's like a song, like teaching through a song, a prayer. But, but David, who's David? He's the king of Israel, wealthy, successful. Yet he's describing himself as a afflicted, poor, needy. I'm like, is this his physical condition? Is this his like emotional condition? Is this a spiritual condition? I'm not going to answer that question because I think in the next few verses we get some insight to what's going on. So in verses 2 through 4, as David kind of humbles himself, I don't think he like intentionally humbles himself. I think he is humble before the Lord. He understands who God is. He understands who he is. He's had great failings up to this point in his life. And yet the Bible refers to him as a man that has the, like a heart that's after God's own heart. A man after God's own heart. 
And so he, it's not that he's perfect or he's attained this. It's that he wants to follow after God. And in verses two through four, he's going to give three commands and he's going to kind of get like almost balance out the commands with his life. He says in verse two, preserve my soul or save my life. Help me, Lord. For I am a godly man. Oh, you, my God, save your servant who trusts in you. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you I cry all day long. Make glad the soul. Some some translations read, give me joy. Like, make me joyous. Help me to rejoice. The soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, I lift my soul. And so as I read these three things, or four things, the, the save my life, save my soul, the save your servant, be gracious to me. Give me joy. Well, the, is David in some sin? Is he strayed from the Lord? Well, then when I see the balancing outside of these four things, he says, I'm a godly man. I trust in you. I cry or pray to you all day long. I lift my soul up to you and yet I don't have joy. And so what I see in this is there's something happening to this man that's causing this. It has nothing to do with his spiritual condition before the Lord. He's walking with the Lord. There are many that will tell you that if you're a Christian and if you're in the Lord, then you should have no bad days. You, you should have no days of discouragement or frustration or not knowing what's happening in your life. And yet what I see in this guy's life David, the man after God's own heart, the man who the Lord used in a mighty way, he's frustrated. Something's got him down. Nobody knows what's happened. Although some have suggested that this is when his son Absalom was leading a revolt against him, trying to usurp the nation to take his rule from him. If you turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 30. Now, we don't know. We see this, this story where, unfold where, where David's kingdom is kind of falling apart. His son is leading a coup against him. His most trusted general has turned his back on him. And if you do a little background study, it's one of these places. Absalom's his son and Ahithophel is his most trusted general. Yet his most trusted general turns against him. Now, this is one place where the genealogies make all the difference in the world. Most of the times I get to those and it's like, if I'm really feeling courageous, I'll try to read him through. The most times it's like, oh, so-and-so begets so-and-so, so begets so-and-so. It's like, <laughs> and if you're doing the, the year in a Bible thing, it's like, well, I can just skip three pages. Woohoo, we got it done. We're good. But if you do a little research in the genealogy, you learn that Ohithophel is Bathsheba's dad or grandfather. I forget what it is. Grandfather. Makes a little bit more sense. Makes a little bit more sense. And so in the midst of this, his sons basically leading this revolt, Ohithophel's there. And in verse 30, we read, and David went up to the ascent of the Mount of Olives. And wept as he went, and his head was covered, and he walked barefoot. And all the people who were with him each covered his head and went up weeping as they went. 
Now someone told David, Ohithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, I pray, make the counsel of Ahithophel foolishness. Some have suggested, I mean, this was obviously a bad time in David's life. And that's why it's hard to find commentaries on Psalms, because I think people just read them and they go, oh, they speak for themselves. Like, you don't need to add anything to the Psalms. I almost could have just read Psalm 86 and said, amen. All right, guys, have a great day. But I didn't. And so now if this is the situation in which this psalm was written, it kind of, it fits. Certainly if it's not, there was something going on in David's life. He says, I'm walking with you, yet my life is threatened. I'm, I've got agony in my heart. I have my joy. I'm just, your son is leading a revolt against you. I think that would break your heart. Like, Lord, why is my son not walking with me? Following after you. And he calls to the Lord and he asks for help. And, and if you're in a season of discouragement and you're a believer and you're walking with the Lord and you're doing everything you want to, don't let the well-intentioned dragons kind of like, oh, you must have sin in your life like Job's friends. You must be doing something wrong. This side of heaven, like we get discouragement. This world is a hard place. And in the midst of this, David's example, where does he go? He goes to the Lord and he calls out to the Lord. He seeks the Lord for help. And as he's calling out to the Lord in these first four verses, see, I've highlighted all of David's requests in orange. And then I've highlighted all of things about David in blue. And in these first four verses, they're all orange and blue. Like they're just all orange and blue. This is my need. This is who I am. This is my need. This is who I am. This is my need. This is who I am. Listen to me. Answer me, Lord. And then he gets to verse 5. And in my Bible, it shifts all to red. Because that's the part about who God is. And in verse 5, he writes, or he says, or he prays, For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. Now, David didn't make this up. This is an illusion or a, a... a quote from a part of scripture that's already happened. And if you'll turn with me over to Exodus chapter 34, this would have been a well-known passage. In Exodus 34, I'm going to start up in verse 1. The story goes, Now the Lord said to Moses, Cut out for yourself two stone tablets like the former ones. The former ones. What happened? Did they misplace them in the move? <laughs> no, Moses got mad angry and he shatters the commandments that the lord had inscribed with his own hand to the nation of israel cut for yourself god's like you do it this time cut for yourself two stone tablets like the former ones and i will write on the tablets the words which were on the former tablets which you shattered so be ready by morning and come up in the morning to the mount to mount sinai and present yourself there to me On the top of the mountain, no man is to come up with you, nor let any man be seen anywhere on the mountain. Even the flocks and the herds may not graze in the front of that mountain. So he cut out two stone tablets like the former ones. And Moses rose up early in the morning and went up to the Mount Sinai. And as the Lord had commanded him, he took two stone tablets in his hand. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him, stood there with him. 
as he called upon the name of the Lord. Uh, okay. I just want to put, put yourself in Moses' shoes. I'm trying, this is like, like, let's just imagine that we have a roaring fire and you just, in anger, took your Bible and threw it in there. And then all of a sudden God talks to you. And he says, hey, meet me at this location. Get all the animals. I don't even want animals present. Come by yourselves. Like, I've been called to the principal, well, apparently the vice principal is the one who deals with all the administrative stuff. So like I knew the vice principal really well. And uh, it's never pleasant being called to the when the schoolmaster wants to see you and can you imagine moses like god the creator moses who knows god who's seen god already work in mighty ways marching up with the two tablets to replace the ones that in his anger he shattered and then god appears Uh, horrifying would be a probably a not strong enough word and the lord appears And then in verse 6, suddenly the Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, Moses, you're going to fry for this one. (laughs) If I was God, that's what I, you know, it's just a good thing. We can continue to rejoice with me that I'm not God and neither are you. The Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth who keeps Loving kindness for thousands who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. So as God appears to Moses. He reveals himself. He describes who he is. As one. Who is compassionate and gracious, who forgives. This is this is not what we would th- this is not how we would think that God would respond in the midst of the situation. And as we go back to Psalm 86 and we read verse 5, we'll notice what David says is exactly what God revealed back in Exodus 34. He says, "For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness to who all who call upon you. The first thing I want to point out that we're not going to read in this text. David doesn't define who God is. He doesn't say this is, oh, well, I want to create a God who, who's forgiving and kind and just and fair and loves me and will never punish me. He pulls what he knows about God from the scriptures, what God has revealed about himself. The only way that we can know anything about God is because God chose to reveal himself to us. So what we know about God is what he's revealed in his word. And David goes to the word in the midst of his trial as he's calling out, Lord, hear my prayer. Answer me. Lord, help me in these areas for this is my life. And then he reflects on who God is from scripture. He says, Lord, I, you're good. You're ready to forgive in abundance and loving kindness. And we're going to see down in verse, the end of verse seven, he says, you will answer me. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor is there, there any works like yours. Verse 10, for you are great and do wondrous deeds. 
And then you alone are God. We need to be clear. God is totally separate from us. God is independent. He is all by himself. He is completely distinct from anything we know. God is God. His ways are not our ways. And so when we go to him, we're not going to another human being. We're not coming to to something that we can see or know or like anything that we have. God is alone in in his infinite wisdom. He is creator, not created. And as David calls him, he says, you are absolutely different. You are all powerful. You're all knowing you're you're good. You're gracious. First thing he says in verse five, you are good. Now, just a few weeks ago in Luke, remember the young rich ruler in Luke chapter 18 approached Jesus. He says, oh, good teacher. And how did Jesus respond to him? He says, why do you call me good? For there's none good except for God. And so when when David ascribes goodness to God, it's because God said he's good. And we're not talking good. We this is like how we use love. Like I joke, I love, you know, I love my wife and I love In-N-Out Burgers. I went to In-N-Out Burgers this week and it's like, man, you just can't. It's like five guys not to continue the burger debate from here. But the point is that we use love so kind of, you know, loosely. And we use good in the same capacity. You know, I get it when we say, oh, they're such a good person. Like they're not believers, but man, they are good people. There are a bunch of good people when you measure by human standards. Like I get it. Like you can be a non-Christian, non-religious person and be just a good person. And in the country, we have a lot of these people that are willing to, that, that biblical truths radiate how they lead their lives. But when we're talking about good with God, we're in a whole different category. This is, this is not good like we see good people. Or yeah, they're, they're good folk. This is holy, totally without sin, all powerful. All, there's nothing like God. And so good in this sense, only God is ultimately good. He goes on to say, ready to forgive. Now, remember the story when Jesus is in Capernaum and and there's a paralytic man laying there and there's a big crowd. It's recorded in Mark 2, 7. And Jesus goes to the guy, says, your sins are forgiven. I could see the poor guy. It's like, well, that's wonderful. But I didn't come here for my sins. I came here because I can't walk and I'm paralyzed from my neck down. And the Pharisees and those religious people who saw this, they jump on Jesus in Mark 2, 7. They say, why does this man speak this way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? We have the capacity, if somebody wrongs me, I can forgive them, but I'm not forgiving their sins. I'm freeing them from like my anger towards them and what they've done, and that's fine. But ultimately, God could forgive sins. Only God. And in that story in Capernaum, Jesus looks at him. He's like, well, what's it easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or to heal this guy who's been paralyzed from birth? Obviously, to say your sins are forgiven. And Jesus looks at the guy. He's like, oh, yeah, by the way, get up and walk out of here. Guy's like, all right. He gets up and he walks out. And Jesus says, you know, like, I healed this guy to show who I am. I didn't heal this guy for the sake of healing this guy. I healed this guy to demonstrate that when I say your sins are forgiven, I have that authority. 
And God alone can forgive sins. Then there's this word abundant and loving kindness. There's like, I, I lack the articulation to try to explain this word in the Hebrew, but it's, it's just beautiful. Just look at beautiful, loving kindness. Love, kindness, it's, that's how God describes himself. And then David, this, this abundant, it's like the God's loving kindness is to all who call upon him. And it's funny from this phrase to all who call upon him. Look how verse six begins. Like as David like is focusing on who God is and his loving kindness to all. It's like he's like, hey, I'm included in that all. And so my Bible turns to orange in verse six. Hey, God's loving kindness is available to all who call upon him. Hey, I'm I count in all. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer and give heed to the voice of my supplications. Lord, your loving kindness abounds. So I'm going to. I want to take advantage of this. We know that all who call upon you, that your loving kindness, your love for them is there. I got one of the most difficult emails. And I can't even go into detail. Like, it's just, it, I get a lot of emails. And I get faced with all kind of problems that people go through. And I got a weird, like, it was, it, it about knocked me off my chair. And it kind of was a person who's making a major sort of change, like major, like never would have suspected at all. And gender identity and family kind of broken and and not a religious person, a friend of mine. And, you know, I had one of these um, foot in the mouth experiences recently, you know, kind of like. Wow, you're really comfortable with your manhood. He kind of laughed and he said, I need to say, I need to talk to you. It's like, did he even phase me? Then I got this email last night. And uh, he's like, well, I really respect your faith and I'm not a person of faith and I hope that you'll still choose to be my friend. It's like, oh man, how do I respond to this? And I'm like, without internet, the house, I'm on my phone going, tuk, tuk, I got to respond. Like, And I'm thankful that the person understood that there's a difference between my, like, disapproval of, like, actions and my ability to, like, love that person. And I'm meditating on this verse, like, God's loving kindness. Like, God loves this individual. He loves all of us. Like, we seem to, like, categorize sins sometimes. Like, that we can have our own sins and our own, you know, that, that we're okay with. And we won't look down upon, but these ones that seem kind of, like, out of our... Well, those are like way worse because those aren't my sins. They're their sins. And so like my prayer is like, well, Lord, your loving kindness abounds to all who call upon you. And so, Lord, help me, like, use me as an advocate to reach out to this person that I don't even, like, I don't understand this. I can't even begin to comprehend. But I know that God loves this person. And so I want to demonstrate this love at the same time while maintaining what I think is right and wrong from a biblical standard. That might be a secondary thing, but I needed to share that with you, I guess, for me. It's difficult. And David, as he looks upon this, he, re- he remembers from the word about God's nature. And when you're in trouble or you're frustrated or discouraged, there's no better place to go to the word and reflect on who God is. In theological terms, it's called theology proper. Like, like what has God revealed about himself? God is love, 1 John 4, 8. Jesus 
while you were still a sinner, Jesus died for you. Like, we know all of these truths about God, and there's a time to pull from these scriptures just to meditate and reflect. No, Lord, you are good, ready to forgive, abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. David says in verse 7, In the day of my trouble I shall call upon you, for you will answer me. God wants to speak to us. He wants to communicate to us. He's given us his word. You can't, in Valley Center, it's beautiful out here at night. But, like, even apart from the word, there are some of us who, like, love nature and love being out there. Like, one of my favorite psalms, I don't know why I didn't choose it, but it's just Sunday night and coming, but Psalm 19 says, for the heavens are declaring the glory of God. Like, that you could step outside. And, and I don't see how you could look out at the creation to look at the ocean at sunset. To to look at the vastness of the beauty of this world or even then to go to the other direction into the microscopic view of the detail in like a cell. Like the writing that's on the the DNA strand. It's mind-boggling. And God is like crying out to us that we would know who he is. And it's only out of the hardness of our heart that we reject him. Yet David says... I shall call upon you. You will answer me. There is none like you among the gods and lowercase. David's not saying that there are other gods, but he lives in the midst of a culture. And so do we. Where there's all sorts of things that are being worshipped. Gods that are created by by man's hand. And then they make them and worship. And I think it's in Isaiah. That Isaiah makes fun of these people, that they take a log, they cut it in half. They use half of it to barbecue their dinner, and they use the other half to worship. He says, there's none like you. This pastor's conference I went to last week, one of the guys that spoke preached on Ezekiel chapter 1. Ezekiel chapter 1 is just the most like wild. You read it in your off time. God shows up, and there's just craziness and after he read it his first point is like well the first thing we learn about this is god is totally unique (laughs) and unlike anything that we know and that that was like his main sort of point and then all the other pastors that 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 came up to speak after him said takes a courageous man to preach on ezekiel one to a bunch of pastors you know like this is but, but David gets it like he knows, like Ezekiel, like all of these, what the Bible describes God as, it's beyond what our finite little brains can comprehend because he's so much bigger than, than even all of our brains put together. There is no one like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. Genesis tells us that God spoke creation into existence. He spoke it. There's some that have a hard time with the literal six-day creation. He spoke it. You, you go through the reading of the, even the Ten Commandments. God says in six days I created this stuff. Like, you have to make a stretch to create something other than a literal six-day creation from, from the scriptures. David said there's, there's nothing like when I look at the heavens and the earth, I think it's Psalm 34 when David says, when I, when I look at the heavens and the earth and all that you created, 
Like, who is man that you would like bend down and listen to us? We're, we're nothing. Verse 9, all nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and they shall glorify your name. Human history is moving towards verse 9. A day will come when all will bow down and worship him. For you are great and do wonder, wondrous deeds. You alone are God. And I can't help but to think, like to see a change in David's heart between verse 10 and 11. So often we think prayer is like a rabbit's foot or a grocery list that we come to God. We tell God all of the stuff that we need, that we want, that our lives will fall apart unless we get this stuff. And unless he answers this, then he's not even God. And what we really do is we're elevating ourselves above God. And we think God is our servant boy, the guy who's who we press the button and then he comes and delivers for us. But as David starts out those first four verses, this is my request. This is who I am. Oh, yeah, this is who you are. He remembers who God is. He cries out to him again. And then he reflects more on his deeds that he created everything. I love how God answers at the end of Job. Where were you when I created the stars? Where were you when I made the oceans? <laughs> That's a big slice of humble pie. I don't know. I'd have to ask you where I was. <laughs> like I, I, Oh, I didn't even exist then. That like you created me long after that. And I see a shift in David's heart because somehow, like in the midst, not somehow, but what happens is as we pray biblical prayers, as we focus on who God is, suddenly our, our hearts kind of are bent towards God. Not that God is bent towards us, but he changes. And in verse 11, his command, it seems totally different than the other ones. His request here is, teach me your way, O Lord. Lord, will you show me your ways? For my ways are not your ways. Teach me, and if you teach me, as you teach me, I will walk in your truth. He goes on to say, unite my heart to fear your name. That's a, that's a phrase. If I was really courageous, maybe, see, now I'm up here, now I'm going to have to do this. Yeah. Like, this is a great verse to memorize. Like, unite my heart to fear your name. Our hearts are so fragmented in allegiances. I am just so good at being able to subdivide my heart subconsciously, and I would deny, you know, I, I would deny it to you. No, I'm totally sold out for the Lord. But then there's this little fragment that's holding on to something. There's other, that David says, unite my heart to fear your name. We have such a hard time in our culture with this idea of the fear of God. But throughout the scriptures, we learn that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And David wants his heart to be united, that he would fear God, that his fear of the Lord would give the direction of his life. He says, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with all my heart and will glorify your name forever. Your loving kindness toward me is great. Now, doesn't this sound familiar? Verse five, we learn about God's loving kindness available to all who call upon him. Which then kicked David onto this like request of more requests, more calling out and then reflecting more on who God is. 
But there's a difference in verse 13. He doesn't say your loving kindness is available to all who call upon you. Suddenly it's personable. He says your loving kindness towards me is great. David's not in a great place in his life. He's got people surrounding him trying to take away his kingdom that God has given to him. Yet now he says your loving kindness is great and you have delivered past tense my soul. Wait a minute. Did it in verse two? He said, preserve my soul. I'm a godly man. And in the midst of this prayer, you see David's heart changing. Recognizing what God has done for him. That his loving kindness toward David is great. He doesn't have to be woe is me. Oh, my life is so horrible. No, in you, God, I'm good. You love me so much. You've delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol, the place of death. Verse 14, he, in the most clearest sense, describes his problem. Oh, God, arrogant men have risen up against me and a band of violent men have sought my life and they have not set you before them. You think you have problems. You don't have a bunch of vigilantes trying to like. You know, like, why do we choose the name vigilantes? You know, we like the words are limited, you know. I didn't come up with the name. So now it. And we're hardly vigilantes on the soccer field. <laughs> yeah. We're like hobos or something. I don't. But there's these violent men coming after him. They want to take his life. And he says, these guys, the worst thing about these guys, it's not about me. It has nothing to do with David. David doesn't care about his life per se in the grand scheme of things. The thing he cares about is they haven't set God. They haven't set God before them. That They haven't placed God in the midst of their lives. If this is the case with Absalom and Ahithophel, it makes total sense. It's his, it's his wife's grandfather. It's his son. Neither of whom are walking with the Lord. They're trying to kill David. But as a dad, what he wants most is that they would walk with God. Oh, if my son kills me, that's great. But he doesn't even know you. He's not set you in the forefront of his life. That's what I care most about. Verse 15. He doesn't go into like a poor rain of fire from heaven to consume them. Verse 15, he's reminded of Exodus 34 again. And this verse surfaces. The nature of who God is keeps bubbling to the surface in the midst of what David's going through. Verse 15, but you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness and truth. This seems to repeat itself when things are going bad, I can't tell you how helpful it is to focus on who God is. Don't focus on yourself and your situation. Focus on who God is. Well, I'm there. I should memorize verse 15. I already okay, memorized verse 11. I got to work on that one. Verse 15. Going through a hard time, you're worrying about where's God in the midst of all of this. If you could just have this verse in your heart that you could say to yourself, that you could call out to the Lord with. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth. Oh, man. And as David reflects on this, he comes back and he asks God another request in verse 16. 
Turn to me and be gracious to me. O grant your strength to your servant. And save the son of your handmaid or handmaid. Now this one, I looking at this one in the New American Standard, it's it's different. I've been I tell you, I've been studying in a couple different translations this week, just trying to get different how they translate it. And Rick, your your Bible's no good. I mean, it's good, it's great. <laughs> but I see they're going to worship, and I'm like reading through this again, kind of I'm running out of time. It's like, okay, Lord, we got to go through Psalm 86. There's so much here. And there was a verse that stood out to me, and I'm reading it again in my Bible. And I'm like. Where'd it go? Where'd it go? Did I study the wrong psalm? Like, did I, did I turn the page and read it and go, oh, that was really cool? And in the NIV, but Rick has the older NIV, but in the newer translation, I ran back and printed it out. I like how they translated it. See, it says, in the New American Standard, it says, turn to me and be gracious to me. Oh, grant your strength to your servant. So grant strength to him. David is God's servant. And save the son, he's still speaking of himself, of your handmaid. And I'll confess, the New American Standard isn't always necessarily the clearest. I use it mainly because this is a Bible I went to Bible college with. It's got wide margins. It's very easy to kind of like keep my place. But in my personal like devotional, like the translation that I kind of came to the Lord with is, a new, is an NIV. I love the NIV. There's nothing wrong with it. Well, yours is the older version. See, I'm like in the more like <laughs> I was all, I was a bad reader until like I became a Christian and God started forcing me to read and forcing me to read and read and read. And, and in, the, in the new the, the NIV, like the 1984 edition or whatever, the way it translates this verse, it says, turn to me and have mercy on me. Show your strength in behalf of your servant. Save me because I serve you just as my mother did. And I read that, I'm like, man, that's such a great Mother's Day verse. Why didn't I do that two weeks ago? Like this handmaid that he's talking about, he's talking about his mom. And, and the, like to the mom, like the, the parenting, like David's like caught his son. He's like, he's concerned about how his son's living. But when he cries out to the Lord, he's like, man, my mom walked with you and I'm following in her steps. It's just beautiful because I serve you just as my mother did. He goes on to say, show me a sign for good. He wants to see a sign from God. Show me a sign for good. But there's reason that those who hate me may see it and be ashamed. Because you, O Lord, have helped me and comforted me. I love this. What he wants most is those that hate him to come to know who God is, that their hearts would be right with God. That their souls would be spared. It's weird praying like that when God changes your heart. That guy stole my weed whacker three weeks ago. Like I really, like I'm really proud of myself for how I handled it. I know pride comes before the fall. I'm going to have a moment when I don't do as well. I think the Lord definitely put places, like pieces together in my own life so that I could handle it well the guy took the weed whacker and i have another I have a brand brand new echo weed whacker like it's a good one i have weed whack like i never weed back before i like love the thing i like want to i want to weed whack all day long now 
I mean, seriously, that thing, uh, I'm not doing a commercial for Echo, but man, it was awesome. I want to take it out for a second run. <laughs> and, and I go out there and it's gone. And then it dawns on me, the guy that came to the front door stole the, the weed whacker. I'm like, well, I'm still calling the sheriff, you know, and I love it. You know, it's like I, God wants me to, I'm like, okay, Lord, I guess you want me to continue my, my, my law enforcement ministry from my house. I call the guy shows up. Hey, Gunner, is this your new house? It's great. I'm like, yes, yeah, so you stole my weed whacker. But then it's like I was leaving to go buy the new weed whacker because I had to get a new weed whacker. You, it's like air in Valley Center. You can't go without a weed whacker. And I remember just driving down the road and looking for the, trying to find the suspect's vehicle. I'm just like, Lord, maybe that weed whacker will bring him to Jesus. Lord, would you use it? Would you riddle him with guilt before you that like he would come to know you as Lord? And I'm being serious. Like there's a time, like even Abigail, she's like, what are you praying, pastor? Are you praying that fire would come down? I'm like, well, you know, like that, like not so much. But yeah, but I just that, that God would use this to reach him. And in Second Corinthians, Paul tells like that we no longer see through the flesh. We want to have the eyes of the Lord through people. The guy that stole my weed whacker, Jesus died for him on the cross just as much as he died for me. And I know that God wants him to come to faith. And boy, I've done some pretty terrible things in my own life, and God still had compassion on me. And I love this last sentence. Yeah, show them a sign so that those who hate me may see it and be ashamed, that their hearts would be humbled before you, Lord. Like, not that I would have peace and freedom and all this stuff. But would you do a sign that's apparent because I so live my life for you that they would see, wow, God worked and God is real and God is loving, kind, quick to forgive. And may they see this, that they would be ashamed and humble themselves before you. And this last phrase, this last part, because you, O Lord, have helped past tense me. And comforted, past tense, me. All in one prayer. And have you guys been there when you're like struggling? And you go to pray. And you're praying. You're spending time with the Lord. And by the end, you're like, man, I feel so much better. So maybe it's going to church or going to Bible study. There's been times when it's like, ah, oh, the last place I want to go is church right now. The last place I want to go is Bible study. It's like exactly where I need to be. But I don't want to be there. Because I want to be angry right now. And then you go and you spend a couple hours in God's word and praying and worshiping. And you, you're like a different person because God changes your heart. And I love this, like from where he started at the beginning to where the, this ends, he's a new man. And today we take communion. And I think that the heart of communion, in many respects, is to bring us to 86.1. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me. For I am afflicted, poor, and needy. That we before the Lord, we have nothing to bring to the table as far as it comes with God. And we as Christians, more than anybody else, need to be reminded that it's about what Jesus did on the cross. And so we come and we take this little cracker and this little piece of juice And the reason is to remind us that it's not about us. It's all about him. He died on the cross for us. These little crackers are to remind us of Jesus's body that was whipped, 
that was beaten, that his beard was ripped out, that you couldn't tell what gender he was as he was on the cross naked. I grew up Catholic, and I, like, I'm all for the crucifix. But there's always a little piece of cloth kind of covering him up. But it was the most shameful, horrific thing that anybody could have gone through. His body was broken. Why? Because of his great love for us. Because we've sinned. Because we've missed the mark. Because there's nothing that we can bring to the table that can make us right with God. Sin has totally contaminated us. Yet that goodness that we speak of. The person who doesn't love God, but we say they're good people, because all humanity bears the image of God, we're created in his image. So any goodness we have, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a glimmer of a shadow of who God is, because we're created to like him, in his image. We have attributes that are similar, yet he's totally distinct. And as I take communion... Like it's to remember that our hearts need to be like David's were. For I'm afflicted and needy. Totally needy. For people say all the time, oh, Christianities are for weak people. They need a crutch. Hey, brother, I need a crutch. I need like full-blown life support. I mean, uh, my, my heart is utterly wicked and deceitful. The things that my heart wants are so against God. And so I'm reminded that he paid it all. And as we come and we take communion and we confess our sins, for we're, First John 1 John 1.9 tells us that as you know, we have sin as believers, there's the sin that separates us from God that we have no fellowship. We trust in Christ. Positionally, we're made new in Christ. We're, we're new creatures. We're in Christ. We're bound for heaven. But as long as we're in this flesh, there's this tension of, of our sinful nature and our new nature. And I'm, you know, the people who say, oh, I've so been sanctified that I'm without sin. I can't help but to like kind of laugh. And I say, can I talk with your wife, please? <laughs> Just 30 seconds. <laughs> Just 30 seconds is all I need. Or your children. It's like the thought is like, like it's a struggle. But then as Christians, when we sin, our heart gets astray. We're no longer under condemnation. We're under conviction. And there's nothing more assuring to a person that's riddled with guilt when they're in sin. It's like, oh, brother, that sounds like the spirit of God working on you. But the beauty, 1 John 1, 9, that, that our, as our relationship or fellowship as Christians is broken because of sin that God has revealed to us his nature. And he says, he tells us that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This process of sanctification that as we stumble, we come and we pray like David in in verse 11, teach me your, your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I will give thanks to you, Lord. That's what communion's all about. It's all about Jesus. And so I'm going to pray. We're going to sing a song. And when you're ready, just come forward, get your elements, take them back to your seat. If you need help, please just lift your hand or tell the person next to you to grab the elements for you. And just, just get your elements, sit at your seat, reflect, pray, and ask the Lord. 
to do a work in your heart. Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day, Lord. I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for this wonderful psalm. Lord, that we would get a glimpse into the heart of David. This man who had a heart after your own heart. Your scripture does not paint a a phony picture of him, Lord. He was not perfect. He broke almost all of the Ten Commandments except for the Sabbath that we're aware of, and he probably broke it too. And It wasn't his perfection. It's that he longed for your perfection. He longed to walk with you, that he had a humble heart. And Father, as we take communion today, Father, we call out to you. Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand your ways. Father, that you would continue to to, to reveal yourself to us through your word, Lord, in ways that we can practically understand, that we could take what we've learned about you, Lord, and that we would walk with you, that our faith in you would translate day in, day out in our lives. It's not just about coming to church on Sunday. It's about living a life of worship to you, Monday through Friday. Father, we pray that you would unite our hearts, that we might fear you. Lord, we love you so much. We're thankful, Lord, that you're a God that's forgiving, filled with compassion, that your loving kindness abounds. Father, as we take communion today, we pray that you would do a work in our lives, in our hearts. And we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen.